Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hey friends, my name is Andre and this is the Tennis and Bagels podcast. This is a podcast about everything tennis and uh, it's been a while since the last episode and well, reason being that is barely there's no tennis happening right now really uh the last tournament ended a couple of weeks ago and uh you know we're just kind of right now in this space where we're figuring out what's going to happen in 2021 with the season because of the pandemic but um now we are here and i wanted to do this episode because i think it's a really special thing for for tennis and bagels podcast uh, for me also personally and it's just going to be a one-on-one with uh, our new co-host owen lewis from the racket blog racket written with ck and uh yeah hey owen how's it going uh, i'm doing great thanks for having me i'm really excited to be here um how are you doing I'm doing great, uh, and I'm really excited for today. Uh, today's episode, really, by the way, I, I don't think we've mentioned that, is really just uh, a chat with Owen and just seeing um, his life and his, how his tennis passion developed over the years, in a way. Uh, Owen, can you just do a quick introduction of yourself, please? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, hey, everyone, I'm Owen. Um, I've been a tennis fan for the last... Uh, about four years with kind of increasing intensity over the years. Um, from from the first time I kind of attentively watched a match on TV, I knew that it was different from all other sports. And then I sort of got into the highlight craze on YouTube, watched a lot of them. And now, um, now I watch tennis all the time. I write about it from time to time. And I'm really excited to be doing episodes here in the future. So tennis has kind of become an all-consuming part of my life in the last little bit. Hmm, that's that's really cool. I feel like for a lot of us, like when when we start, we just watch that one or two matches, and you're like, oh yeah, I want to watch more about this, and uh, you want to see more about that that guy and like what the or the girl and what they did in the past, and you just just go into the rabbit hole of uh, YouTube highlight videos, which are very often amazing. <laughs> and uh yeah. and you also make a couple right like for your for twitter and i don't know if you have a youtube channel uh no i don't have a youtube channel something i like to do is um i use imovie on my phone and i'll sometimes stitch little clips together and then um put them to a song nice and then i'll post that on twitter yeah uh, so that that's a fun thing i do from time to time as well yeah it's cool you also have a recent your most recent video was uh one with i think andy murray Andy Murray. Um, oh, that one I never finished, actually. Oh, I started doing one about him that was um, kind of all his losses at the Australian Open, and it was going to be like a sad video. Huh. Uh, my most recent one was um, kind of some of my favorite moments of 2020, like best points, uh, championship points at majors. Not all of them, just hmm. um, some of my favorites. Yeah, it's true. Uh, and since you, you spoke about like your... Um, when you first watched the match and like you started seeing like it was different from other sports, uh, do you recall what match that was? 
Yeah, so um, the first match, I remember being aware of tennis before this, but the first match that I, I really remember was uh, the 2016 French Open. It was um, the semifinal between Andy Murray and Stan Wawrinka. Hmm. And I knew uh, Murray was the one seed. Um, he was the top seed. No, sorry. He was the second seed. Djokovic was the top seed. He was waiting in the final. And Vavrinka was third. Yeah. And I remember Murray going up two sets and thinking, okay, this is probably over. And then I remember Vavrinka won the third, 6-4. He was, um, he was fist pumping a lot. He was winning some exciting points. And I thought that sort of his emotional expressiveness was really, really exciting. He seems to still believe he could win. He didn't. Murray crushed him 6-2 in the fourth. Really good performance. But really what drew me in about the tennis was Vavrinka's resistance in the third set and how he, how he, like, he didn't come back, but how he was trying to come back from a very, very um, bad position in the match. And so I think even more than the sport, what it, what initially called me about tennis was the fighting aspect of it. Hmm. Hmm, that's really, that's really cool. Like, I mean, it, it, I think it's actually pretty common that uh, when we first get um, hooked onto tennis, it's a Grand Slam match because they're mostly mostly televised and ends up being like a this huge five set match and at that point you're like trying to figure out oh yeah there's this tennis and then you come across all these formats and and whatnot um but did you did you know more about tennis before you started or did you ever play tennis you did club things or or was it just like something that you started watching you just came across it one day and that was it for you So I actually played club for a little bit, I think, before I got into tennis. But there was a while when I was playing very, very casually and um, where I knew next to nothing about the sport. And then as I started watching more and learning more about it, I had more fun kind of playing as well because I would watch a match and I would see I would see someone save a break point with like a reliable pattern or something. And then I would think you should like when you're playing, you should be aware of the patterns that work for you. So then if you're in trouble, like try to make this point happen or try to hit a backhand to their forehand or something like that. And so I think, um, but over time I sort of considered myself less, less of a player and more of a fan. I never got to a high level as a player, hmm. but um, like most of the ways I would win matches would be from like starting quickly enough um to like build a lead before they really got war- my opponent really got warmed up or by attacking one of their weaknesses like if they had a great forehand I would just do my best to never hit it to their forehand hmm. but over time I consider myself more of a fan and less of a player that's cool though like you've mentioned one of the things that is uh I won't say this uh not uh that is uncommon but in, in a sense you really uh, started seeing tennis with a st- strategic mind, if you will, uh, and started really like realizing patterns and looking for them. And you approached your matches even, even if like in the club level or whatever, like with some uh, level of strategy and, you know, tactical thinking. So I think it's, it's, it's a, it's a really good um, skill to have to to be able to think through your matches not just like play with your hands and i feel like that was one of my biggest uh failures in tennis is that i i my mind my mind was also always very weak i had a lot of shots but i could never really get my legs to work uh in the match and it was it was pretty bad and you know i would get frustrated a lot when i would hit like big forehands and they came back to me and he was like why is mm-hmm. why was this not a winner should have been a winner <laughs> and yeah. it's like yeah that's pretty frustrating when you just can't really think of um 
just the next ball that's coming at you and then the next point and then so on and on but yeah tennis um tennis can be incredibly frustrating to play and um it's already difficult to kind of keep the score in mind and strategies in mind when you're playing but when you're missing your shots and it's frustrating it's even more difficult um but from and so when I would play, again, not at a high level at all, I would know that other players would be better than me, but I would also know that I knew more about tennis than they did. Mm. And uh, another thing that really helped me was I read Brad Gilbert's book, uh, Winning Ugly, which has a ton of little tips and strategies in it, like kind of little things that help you be more aware of the score or moments when you want to try to up your intensity and that sort of thing. And so there was a match I was very proud of where... um I was playing someone who was much better than me. He had a great forehand. My forehand is terrible. But um, I remembered reading in Brad Gilbert's book, um, at the club level, a smart thing to do sometimes is to receive first if you win the racket spin, because their their weakest service game is going to be their first one. So I remember, even though my opponent had a much better game than me, I, I warmed up more quickly. So I broke him twice um, right, up, right at the beginning, and I ended up winning 6-4, 6-4, huh. even though... Um, like my backhand was probably the only thing that I did better than him. Um, so I, I would, most of my matches would be wins like that. I would kind of sneak them out and it, it would be really satisfying. Yeah. Nice. So it's, you're all about the brain game. <laughs> yeah. Because I have no physical game. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Same. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty quick. I am I'm very proud of my defense. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I'm also very proud of like, I, I know how to throw a, a forehand, you know, if you know what I mean, like, and even my yeah. service, it's normally uh, pretty good for a person of my height. I mean, I'm not a short person, but I'm I'm an average uh, male. Like I think I'm like five foot eight, something like that. Mm-hmm. So that's I'm not. About what I yeah, mean. I'm not the, the tallest person. You know, like I cannot just like pop in aces like John Isner, but like yeah. I, I can surprise opponents like with some like good serves. And I actually got a a lot of uh, when I watched a lot of like Federer matches and th- things like that. It's I was like just wondering it's not always just about power like about mm-hmm. placement too and I would just try to vary like that thing as well but you also mentioned something really interesting that um you said you read it on the book um which you very recommended that to me once when I asked you um way when we did our first podcast I believe I think we were just chatting before then and yeah I asked for for something like that and and you, you mentioned that book um but you you do have a passion for writing tennis, right? Yeah. Or writing in general, I would say. Yeah, um, I, I like to write. In the, in the future, I hope to be um, a tennis journalist. Um, and so, like, another thing that really helped me get more into tennis was just reading a lot of articles, um, a few books as well. Sometimes something I do pretty consistently if I'm bored is I'll think of an old match and I'll go, I don't know, uh, Djokovic, Vavrinka, Australian Open 2013, and I'll just Google that and then read some of the articles that were written at the time about it. And so um, I've gotten a better sense of kind of what happened in some specific matches that way, but also it gives me a bit of um, knowledge about how tennis writing works, how um, how some articles are structured, that sort of thing, and how I want to write personally. Hmm. Yeah, that's that's really cool. And uh, what about like maybe tennis books? Like is, you said, you read one. How many have you read? And like maybe what? Which one is your favorite? Like I would just put it that way. Th- this is tough. So um, huh. I've read a few autobiographies. I read. Um, Andre Agassi, Monica Sellas, uh, Pete Sampras, Rafa Nadal. Um, Djokovic wrote a really short book um, that, that was a little bit autobiographical, 
autobiographical, but it was mostly about his eating habits. I enjoyed that as well. Mm. Um, so if I had to go with one, I, it would probably be Open by Andre Agassi. But another one that I loved was um, it's a book called The Circuit by um, Rowan Ricardo Phillips. And it essentially recaps the ACP um, circuit in 2017. And it wasn't it wasn't really a tournament by tournament recap, but it had a lot of really, really great nuggets in there. Like there are some lines that I remember specifically um, where I think I don't think um, that the thing that's being described has been described better than it was in that book. So that's a book I would recommend to everyone. Um, like not only is it a good, um, pretty comprehensive recap of the 2017 season, but I learned a lot about tennis by reading it. And there were some specific passages that like, I still recall. Hmm. Like, like which one would you say? So, um, there was, there was one part, it was talking about, um, Djokovic's match with Verdasco in Doha of 2017. And in this match, um, Djokovic saved five match points in the second set tiebreak and then went on to win the match. And I remember there was one part that said, um, so Verdasco went up 6-2 in the second set tiebreak. And there was a bit that said between Verdasco gift wrapping all four match points with nervous play and Djokovic saving them with clutch play lies the central truth of tennis. One one misstep in the middle of one point can create an avalanche that sweeps away any advantage, no matter its size. Opportunity's door opens and closes quickly in tennis, uh, more quickly than in most other sports. And I thought that that really just captured a quality of tennis that is rarely put into words, because you see these matches where a player, in theory, can be up like 6-0, 5-0. And lose the match. And while that doesn't really happen, massive leads are blown all the time. Um, hmm. I mean, we saw... The, I remember there was a match that Steve Johnson played at the U.S. Open. I think he was down two sets. His opponent was serving, and it was like 5-2, 40-love or something. And then Johnson ended up winning the match. Just crazy stuff like that. Um, and then and then that page of the book also captured Djokovic's like really unique ability to save match points and win matches. And I think it, I think it said something like, um, no one does the safety dance like Djokovic. Mm. Um, he has a strange ability, um, to twist out of the vice. He seems trapped in and somehow squeeze the life out of his opponent. Instead, it's not a pretty magic, but it's magic all the same. And again, I thought that was really, really insightful and really, um, absolutely captured, Djokovic's ability to save match points because it, it is a strange it is a strange ability it's it's kind of hard to describe even though he's saved match points and won matches 15 times like sometimes you see him hit winners sometimes you see him his opponent um choke and hit errors but this has happened so consistently it's sort of like what is he doing specifically um that makes you wonder and and again I think it's it's hardly ever put into words and um and so the, the circuit does a really good job of that Nice. And I'm starting to think you're a genius, bro. Like you, you actually <laughs> remember like solid passages. You read so much and you're you are now like uh, 19. I can cut this part out if you want to. Yeah, I, I'm 19. <laughs> um, uh, and don't worry about it. Yeah. Like, um, you might think I'm a genius, but I spend all my time reading, uh, uh, reading tennis stuff. I've read that book cover to cover, uh, probably 10 times. So, um, <laughs> so, um, in, in other, areas of skill i'm i'm really lacking but i i can remember some tennis stuff well all the more reason for me to think that you're a genius like, like <laughs> in, in, in any case uh what about writing because you're, you're saying like uh to capture tennis and tennis quality and tennis moment in, into words uh mm -hmm. so what about tennis writing like just makes you you know 
passionate about it. Because for me, I love, I love the game of tennis, and I like the writing too. I normally read articles with the goal of um, understanding better a match. Mm -hmm. uh, but I, I like watching a match, and I like um, seeing the records book being, being books being written. And I obviously love playing and i also like uh gaming because I, i like competitive stuff but like for yeah. you it definitely seems there is a almost like a uh like a mystique aspect of tennis in the sense that like you, you talk about the writing and a lot i can definitely see that now that you now that we're talking about it like in more depth like uh when i've read a bunch of articles um that are not necessarily just uh like a play-by-play -play type of thing but more of a like a like a piece you know you know and yeah. it definitely sounds like other writers share the same uh, feeling as you. They portray uh, players as gladiators and they use different metaphors to approach a match and approach a, you know, a, a time of a, ma of a match or a point. Or, you know, they even talk about like how the players come in or they go out and how they even like look up to the other, to the opponent at the other side of the net. But like, I mean, there's yeah. always this aspect of building sort of like a narrative around it that makes it so compelling to just read and not necessarily just to to watch um mm -hmm. i was actually like thinking about this as well like when i read the wimbledon book and uh the pete Sampras book uh that i just got came out by uh steve flank uh greatness revisited um so what about writing makes you you know makes you love it like what do you love about writing so much you know that's essentially well, my question I, i think i think it's kind of a desire to um, emulate um, the passages like I described from the circuit and other works as well. I think tennis has a lot of really great qualities that are hard to put into words. And so when when it can be put into words, I think that's unusual and it's also really enjoyable to read because I think I think all tennis fans sort of have this sense of um, companionship because they're all watching this this sport, this great sport, um, the sport that's impossibly tense at certain points in matches. And so I think they're all sort of aware of these these qualities that tennis has, but but it, it is hard to put them into words. And so if I can, that's that's something that I'd like to try my best to do. Um, like as a reader, sometimes I'll read something and I'll think, like, I, I knew this, but I wasn't able to phrase it mm. perfectly like this. And so it's sort of my, my love for writing is sort of a desire to be the writer and have a reader feel that way. Um, I think... Sometimes also I'll I'll watch a great match or highlights of a great match and then I'll look for articles on it because I think like this match was so amazing. I was so impressed by it. I want to see what um what professional writers thought. And sometimes I'll read a piece and I'll be a little disappointed by it. Hmm. Like um like they'll go through all the sets, but they would describe a great um major semifinal or final as like impossibly tense or something or um or drama filled or really high quality but sometimes that's as far as it goes and you you put it really well earlier when you said um i really love like the mystic quality and like the mystique about tennis and so so i i love to read about the stats and figures they tell the story of a match but i also want to read about um that mystic quality beyond just a few words so that's something um, often unsuccessfully, perhaps always unsuccessfully, but that's something that I hmm. try to work into my writing when possible. Yeah. And one of the things that I find is interesting in terms of, because just kind of contrasting statistics and uh, 
just descriptions of a match and actually watching it. I feel like it's pretty impossible to write something comprehensive about a match if you haven't watched it. Uh, yeah. So you just get stuck with the statistics and you know sort of like what happened and how a person has won uh, on a more objective way. But you don't necessarily know... Um, because there is something that uh, you can't necessarily tell with statistics, uh, like body language and uh, just just the look that they give, uh, how many right. times they may bounce a, uh, like a, a ball, like how the audience was screaming on on yeah. on stage uh, on the on stage on the on the on the audience really in the stands. And one match that really comes to mind for me, it's um, well, uh, there's a lot of matches that come to mind. Most of them are Grand Slam matches, but like mm-hmm. in specific, 2000 and I think 11, was it 11? I think it was 10 when Djokovic hit the, the super return against Federer in the semifinals, uh, right? 2011, it was Open yeah. semifinal. Yeah. That was that one. And the other one that I remember is Andy Murray match point up against Djokovic at Wimbledon. And those are moments that I think you have to you have to watch them. And I can only imagine how how it was to live them because it's it's just such a an, impre- an impressive thing that happens, and I think um, it, it must be really interesting to like be in in your skin in that sense. Like you just really feel like you want to put that into words. You kind of like want to you want to describe even the the feeling the the moment. You want to put it into words in a yeah. way that immortalizes it in a sense. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and something that frustrates me sometimes is uh, both those matches you talked about. Um, I wasn't a tennis fan when they happened, so I've gone back and I've seen them both. But it's impossible to recreate the tension of watching them live and not knowing the result. And um, so a lot of the time, besides highlights, all I'll really have to go off of is articles about them. Hmm. And and so you'll read an article, but sometimes it won't tell you that in that 2013 Wimbledon final, um, in the last game, Murray was up 40 love and, and Djokovic ended up having, I think, two or three break points in that game before Murray finally served it out. Hmm. And the tension in that game was just incredible because the entire center court crowd is screaming for Murray to win. But you have Djokovic like saving match points and, um, and not really making unforced errors and not like giving it to Murray even when he's down three match points on the return. And and so like it, it's really difficult sometimes for for articles to for words really to capture that tension. Um I I wrote kind of kind of a cell phone of an article um at one point that said um like it, it can be tough to sort of capture that feeling with words, mm. but the challenge pales in comparison to what the players are doing, which is sure. um, like performing these amazing physical acts and um, and creating like these tension filled moments. And so I said, sort of like, is it too much to ask for writers to go beyond saying like, oh, this player had a winner, or the other player made fifty seven unforced errors mm-hmm. or something, and and really try to capture that that magic of the moment. Um, and, and this was a cell phone because this is something that I've been guilty of, uh, plenty of times, but it's, it's something that I'd like to remedy in the future if possible. Um, so if, if I could describe a match that happened, I don't know, next year, or this year, and then have someone read it like 10 years in the future and think that really brought me like to the moment of the match, mm. that would be like, that, that would be the highest compliment I could get for my writing. Yeah. Uh, the, the way you think like i haven't read much uh tennis literature i've read uh because i was as i said like i was a lot interested in the in the game and then the record books and things like that and just like things mm-hmm. that happening and uh you know who's becoming the greatest who's becoming the, the, the thing right now to watch um yeah. the player to watch really and 
I would love to just uh, read just the ATP match reports and things like that and just like geek out about uh, points and who was going to finish number one, how many matches they yeah. needed to win, how far they needed to go in a tournament like this or that. Um, but yeah, it's definitely like now that you say, like, I feel like it's it's really interesting to think about it in the sense that when you because I was going to say with that, like I read uh, the Wimbledon book, uh, not all of it. I only like read about up until the open era. And mm -hmm. there are matches there that he describes, uh, John Barrett describes it with such precision and passion really in, in his words that it, it brings me back to the 50s or the 40s. Uh, and it's because it's all, he also interviewed people. He didn't all he didn't do all of them by all of it by himself. So and he also mm -hmm. read a lot, too. It's a very, very, very good book. I would recommend it um, for anybody. It's a really interesting read and kind of brings you back to the to the history of tennis and kind of re renewed a lot of my passion about tennis as well. Um, but yeah, like and coming back to the topic topic of tennis, even though we never really left it. But what is your favorite thing I would say about tennis itself, and not necessarily just about writing? Hmm. So, um, well, first of all, I'm going to add that Wimbledon books to my list. Uh, um, might get it for myself as a yeah. Christmas present. I'd definitely like to read that. You should um, read uh, the. You, you should read it now because the the 2000 the version that I read was the one that Andy Murray was the 2012 version. Mm -hmm. um, actually, it came out in 2013, but uh, it mean this means that Andy Murray's victory is not in the book. <laughs> uh, so uh, the new edition certainly has uh, Andy Murray win winning uh i don't know if there's a newer one after this but uh that would definitely be an amazing read to just uh read from the word of a british uh writer mm -hmm. how andy murray broke like a 78 year wait yeah. for a champion <laughs> it would be tough to kind of describe that impartially i'm sure like oh, they no, must yeah. have been so excited oh, um yeah. yeah um uh to, to answer your question i think my favorite my favorite thing about tennis is probably the scoring system mm -hmm. i think like um like uh, Rowan Ricardo Phillips said in the circuit, um, like the window of opportunity in tennis is so, so, so small and, and fast closing. And I think this is really, really unique to tennis. I love how, um, like in the first game of a match even, like you can make two errors uh, while serving and you're down law of 30 and there's already pressure, like mm -hmm. that early. Um, where if you have baseball or something, if if you don't score in the first um, in the first half inning, like it's no big deal. You have a bunch more chances. But if if you fall down a break early and your opponent starts quickly, then the set could be gone um, in in minutes. And fighting back from a set down is hard. I actually I looked at um, a couple sets online earlier. I was having a Twitter conversation about this, and um, I think in the last twenty years on the professional tour, like in best of three matches, um, the the winner of the first set like wins the match almost eighty percent of the time. Yeah, um, and that and that's that's a pretty staggeringly high number. Um, so, so I, I really love it when, um, like long games, break points, break points being saved. Um, and the fact that there's no clock is amazing because it means that it's never too late in theory for a comeback to start. Um, like, I'm not sure this has ever happened, but you could be down in a best of five match, um, zero six, zero six, zero five, love 40. 
and um, theoretically you could come back and win that match. Mm. Whereas in say um, say soccer or American football, if if you're way behind with a minute left, like doesn't matter how well you play, a minute is not enough time to overcome a big deficit. But that that's not a problem in tennis, and so this was. This kind of allowed for um, Vavrinka to fight in that French Open match, which um, really drew me into the sport. He was down two sets, but um, but if you play better for three sets after that, then you'll win the match. And he believed he could do it, and he he did it for a set, which was really exciting. Hmm. Um, so so yeah, I think I think tennis's scoring system is is really the main thing for me that that makes it so compelling yeah. and and exciting and nerve wracking to watch. Yeah, the scoring system is amazing in tennis, and I think it was the the thing that like I took it took me the longest to understand because uh, I come from Brazil, and uh, mm-hmm. for the majority of sports, you score a point, you score a point, you don't score fifteen or thirty. Right. So at first, it, I was a kid, so it was kind of confusing for me. But uh, after that, like I understood that that's fine. It's just how the game works. But yeah. the thing that I love the most about tennis is that you can win a match having won fewer points than your opponent. And I feel like yes, this is magical. It's amazing. It's the, the feeling that I love the most about like when I, for example, I play lots of tennis games and whenever I win a match and I, I, I notice that I won fewer points, I feel so good because I, I know that I was somewhat being outplayed for a lot of that yeah. match and, but I still came through and I think this is incredible. Like it, it doesn't even make sense. <laughs> It, it it makes so little sense in a way that like um it if you just look at the points won in a match it, it doesn't tell you much at all right yeah and as much as like for example winning sets and you just won the exact same amount of points as your opponent as your opponent this is also possible it's like it's a tie no it isn't because he won the, the actual important points of the match so yeah i think winning down in the number of points is probably my favorite thing about tennis yeah um when i'm playing i it's i love to like steal sets like be down four mm. one and win it six four or seven five or something um and and um losing losing more points than your opponent in a match and winning the match is not that uncommon we saw in the wimbledon final last year the men's final um yep Djokovic, uh, Federer won 14 more points than Djokovic, yeah. I think, and lost the match. Um, and so, so something about tennis is it's not always about how many points you win, it's about which points you win. Yeah, exactly. And I love that, um, that you could, you could be struggling on serve for an entire set, but if, if you, if you save the break points or if your opponent plays badly on the break points, then you could win it in a tie break or they could play one bad game and you can steal the set right at the end. Um, yeah, yeah that, that, that's a really, really a great quality of it. Um, like, I think there was a set that again, Djokovic and Federer played, um, the 2015 us open final, I think the third set and Federer was in every single Djokovic service game. I think, in every game Djokovic served that set, Federer had a love 30 or a 15-30 or a break point. Hmm. Um, but, and, um, and Federer held to love twice in the set, which Djokovic never did. And yet uh, Djokovic won it 6-4. Hmm. And it's like this sort of thing in other sports just isn't possible. But in tennis it is. And it means the margin for error, even when you're playing better than your opponent, is so small. And that just means that there's tension all the time. It's... It's like a dramatic TV show, like all the time. Yeah, that's that's great. And uh, one of the things as well, like uh, we've been talking a lot about Grand Slams and and everything like that. So I know that mm-hmm. you're a big, big fan of uh, Best of Five. 
matches. Um, And I recall, uh, I don't remember who I was talking to. I think it was, well, never mind that. But like uh, um, the first match that got me into tennis really was when I was watching uh, Djokovic versus Stepanek. And I never remember, I think it was in 2007, US Open. Mm -hmm. And one of the qualities of a best of five that for me is, is incredibly compelling is the fact that it can be so long that at the end, um, there is almost this sympathy from both players that both of them are dead tired and they can barely yeah. stand. It's like at that point, it, you would obviously would rather win a match, but so often you just hear players like, I was just happy to be out of the court at that point. Uh-huh. Um, I remember uh, Isner, Isner Mahoud, um, 2011 as well, I think. Um, uh, 2010, I think. 10, yeah, that yeah. was 10. That, <laughs> felt so bad for both of them. That was the most ridiculous, ridiculous tennis score I've ever seen. Yeah. I thought I thought there was a bug on the on the app when I when I looked at the score at like 30 yeah. all and like as in 30 games all. In right. Most. It's like is that a game score? Like, yeah, no. no. 30 games all. It's ridiculous. <laughs> Dang. So I was like, that. There's no way this is still going on. So yeah, Mahul was not happy with that with that win, but Isner was not oh, happy yeah. either because he played yeah, the next he, match um, and he lost pretty comprehensively and he was like, yeah, I'm not touching a tennis racket in the next few weeks. <laughs> yeah, um, he didn't hit a single ace in his second round match, yeah. I think, because he was so dead. Yeah. It, it pretty beat up emotionally too and, and mentally. There's yeah. no way you just come out of that and like, oh my gosh, that is still another. That was just like a second round or whatever. It's like, gosh. I, I think it was a first round, yeah. And like w- yeah. when a match lasts five days, I don't no, know how. Yeah, yeah like um, the, the emotional hangover is... um is really prevalent like you said like sometimes a player will play a big rival in an early round or a semi-final even and um and the match will be so intense that it'll feel like a final but but then but they have more matches to play and and the opponent doesn't care that they'll be emotionally tired they're yeah. gonna play they're gonna play as hard as they can yeah. so that's that's another thing that you have to deal with um and to go on a quick tangent that um wimbledon changing um that that rule about the extended fifth set um so that there's a tie break at 12 all at first i had some major reservations about that because i was thinking they're essentially changing the rule because of one player john isner um his his semifinal in 2018 with kevin anderson 26 24 in the fifth was uh the tipping point because um because anderson like couldn't move in the final yeah um and it was it was awful Djokovic uh like ran through him yeah um and so i was thinking like I mean, th- this will prevent cases like that, but if the players in the match are not named John Isner or Kevin Anderson, it should be fine. Um, <laughs> but, but I do think that, um, that 12 all is, is, is an appropriate point. If yeah. it, it's an, it's another entire set. So if it doesn't seem settled by then, um, anything else seems sort of, um, gratuitous, hmm. but, um, but to go back to what you said earlier, I, I am a big fan of best of five. I think, um, I think it forces players to um, to be mentally and physically engaged for longer. Um, it so I think it taxes them more, and I like to see players pushed because I think um, I think seeing what players can do when when they're on the brink physically and mentally sort of exposes what kind of um, how tough they are mentally. Um, yeah. And like like the 2012 Australian Open final, for example, um, like at the end of that fifth set, we saw both both players. Um, pretty exhausted in body and mind and um and seeing what they could do even while um that tired was incredible and so i would love to see um see some best of five and um in women's majors as well if possible i know that 
there are some people pushing for best of three. And so if a compromise eventually had to be made, and this is in some hypothetical world where I'm, Hmm. uh, you know, like the monarch of tennis or something, I would say, um, okay, I would want both tours to play best of three for the first week in majors and best of five for the second week. But, um, but I think best of five is great. And, um, I'd like to see more of it, not less. Yeah. This seems like a pretty popular opinion among, uh, tennis fans who are engaged in it like pretty often like like we are uh and it definitely feels interesting too because um i've caught myself uh i wanted at first i wanted to watch every single uh djokovic match or federer match or even nadal match um Mm -hmm. nadal not so much because i didn't like him at first but now i love him but the thing is uh i i just understood that i was getting bored of like seeing djokovic just winning like six two six one six one and i was like this is yeah. not interesting it's if, if i don't want i don't need to watch another set this guy's already defeated like it doesn't right. matter so i feel like if you were a, a best of three you would have been uh more interesting of course you would lose a couple of uh epic matches that we've had like in week one um mm-hmm. but at the same time is it's always a compromise you can you can have it all otherwise you know we know that the entire tour will be a best of five um format even though the best of three also has a lot of good advantages and good things um you know epic epic matches we remember those by being best of five there are rare uh, occasions in which is going to be a best of three right um yeah like I, i think um i think you do make a good point about the compromise like i think everyone can agree that we don't need to see Djokovic beat up on i don't know nishioka or struff um both of whom he played at in Australia. He actually lost a set to Struff, but I don't think we need to see him win those matches like one, two, and one or something. So um so I think going to best of three in the first week of majors would eliminate some of those. Mm-hmm. We would also lose some early epics, like you said, which personally I wouldn't love, but um but the second week we would still have those um those great five setters with two top players, which um which oftentimes has resulted in some of the best matches ever. So I think preserving that is really important. Uh, uh, and so, um, so to do so, I would be willing to compromise at some point again, if I were like the king of tennis, but I'm not. So, <laughs> yeah, like tennis, if, if there's one thing that we don't have in tennis is unity. <laughs> yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah, so many different organizations. And I remember, um, with the PCPA earlier in the year, um, like by within a few hours of it being announced, like all four majors had put out statements against it as had like the ATP, the WTA and the ITF. And it's like, can't, can't there be one organization or at least like two or like two different ones so that things would be easier. But, um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I never, it's not that I never understood it, but like I was pretty, uh, you know, confused when I first came across like ATP um and the itf and the grand slams because yeah i was like isn't the itf the tennis federation like shouldn't it have like power over things it's because it's it's not like for example we have uh the uh the national hockey league for example which is uh which is our you know the national league so it's it's how it happens here so we have our own set of rules and whatever but like then Mm -hmm that would be like a, an international uh, committee or something like that that would exist for that. And like, I feel like the class, the most classic exa- example actually would be uh, the soccer one, which is, has the, the FIFA. Uh, mm-hmm. And then each country has a, their own set, set of rules and a set of championships and things like that. But they all adhere right. pretty much to the basic, um, you know, 
big organization that has everything. Whereas for tennis, it's not like that. You know, they have a lot more freedom to things. And one of the things that now they're trying to talk a little bit about uh, um, news and things like that, the new um, system by the WTA, um, mm -hmm. it seems pretty confusing right now. And uh, I maybe want to let you talk about it a little bit because I you, you, I think you shared a little bit of my thoughts and, and how... Uh, they have now 250, 500, and 1,000, but it's not exactly but that. But they're not so, actually worth that yeah. many points or something. Yeah. yeah. And so, like, um, yeah, th there are a couple of things that just seem silly to me. Like, um, as a fan, I would say the way I'm most directly affected is um, when I go on YouTube to watch highlights. And um, and the majors all have their own separate YouTube channels, but other tournaments can't use points from majors. And majors can't use points from ATP or WTA tournaments that yeah. are separate from from the majors and it just seems bizarre to me like i think tennis tv something i complained about on twitter recently posted um a rafa nadal 2020 highlight reel and the thumbnail was um him winning at roland garros and i'm thinking like what are they doing they're not allowed to use those points and then um and it just seemed kind of annoying because i knew that roland garros footage wouldn't be in there and of course that was the most important tournament he won all year um So, like, of course it should be in there in a proper highlight reel, but because of copyrights and all that sort of thing, it was only um, ATP tournament footage. And so I so I complained about it on Twitter, and I was like, why is this the thumbnail if they can't use Roland Garros points? And, and they changed it. I'm not sure if they saw my comment. I did tag them, but... Um, I mean, this just seems like a small thing that would be very easy to fix and yet hasn't been fixed in a while. And then there's also the problem of these official channels, like copyright striking the the fan-made channels, which are frankly better than the official channels. They use points from uh, all tournaments. They come up with fun video ideas. And yet <laughs> the official channels both refuse to make better content and they copyright strike the good content. But yeah. um, sorry, I, I could go on about this for a while, <laughs> yeah, but it, it's it, it's a little frustrating. Yeah. yeah, it's honestly one of the things that I, I think I've mentioned in a, in a very early episode. Don't go listen to that, by the way, it sucks. Uh, <laughs> but uh, uh, it's how highlights are... For for example, like let's just put it this way, right? I'm not I'm a I'm a tennis fan and I don't earn any money by being a fan or even doing this podcast. Uh it would be great if I could, but that's not the case right now and we have to live with that. But I don't have the time to sit through like a, a five hour match or a four hour match on a Friday, for example. I gotta have to mm -hmm. I gotta go to work or I can't watch the Australian Open because it's at three AM in the morning. Like even though I tried, sometimes I'm just too sleepy or things like that. Right. So how do I consume those things? I I have to watch something online, right? I have to like go back to it and see uh, highlights of it, and or if if I have the patience, I can watch the entire match, or I can I have already divided a match like and I watched it over over a week or anything. I think it was uh, the 2012 final, which I didn't hadn't watched at the time because it was it was by the time it finished was an. Uh, It was a Sunday, but it was 9 a.m. or something. I was not gonna right. be I was not gonna be awake for this this whole this whole time. But yeah, like when you go through um channels, the, the channels and they have like three points and some of them are not, not really either good or important. It's just there. Yeah. It's it's just frustrating. It's like I don't have the right to to see any of this match. I if I missed it, I missed it and that's it. So yeah. But I feel like the the whole um, Grand Slam thing, it's about also a big um, fossil that exists from the pre-open era thing, which in which mm -hmm. Grand Slams were too snobbish to uh, allow professional players to come and play in right. them until they finally opened the Grand Slams up for them. And 
they're probably still holding holding a lot of that so that they still have a lot more of uh, their own freedom. And mm-hmm. by the way, uh, I don't know if you knew that, but like Wimbledon has a long history as well with the LTA. And they didn't like each other very much in the past. Let me just put that uh-huh. <laughs> around. So it's not even only in the international and associations. It's like there's so much conflict within the tennis organizations. It's, it's, it's pretty insane. So yeah, yeah that would yeah. that'll, that'll um, be great if they could come up with something new and some some unity for that, you know. And to go back to the WTA point that I was making earlier, I was thinking about it and there is a there's a difference in points that you can make, right? Uh, even though they're all named the same, like in the in the same tiers, and yeah. I believe um, that they're doing the reason for doing so is that they don't want to punish the the players that were winning those tournaments beforehand, or you know, because if you just switch all the points like immediately, I feel like there could be a problem in the rankings. Mm-hmm. I don't know how they can do this without like a sudden transformation in the ranking system, right? But um, you know. There might be a reason that they're just trying to figure out a way to um, not punish the the players for for winning, you know, less points or more points now. Because it could be a problem if, uh, for example, you defend your title, but now you have like an extra hundred points. It could be problematic right. for the higher uh, ranked players. It could pr- bring them down a little bit and bring somebody up a little bit more than they should have in the old system. So I think that there is some sort of a. Um, inside issue with that and between the players and the association that's all i'm saying for now yeah yeah. i I think that could be tricky as well something i just thought of was maybe they could they could act as if the change took place like a year ago so um if you won it when it was worth fewer points then we'll just assume it counts for the same as it's going to count for in the future but then that might bother the people who won it two years ago or something so that doesn't sound like it would be an easy fix and um to go back to what you said about um the youtube channels i think i think you hit on something uh that i feel as well like when i'm watching highlights i want to see the best points and the most important points yeah and sometimes the channels just basically show a refusal to be competent in that area i remember um with the Djokovic Nadal Wimbledon match in 2018 which i think is the best men's match of the decade and i think that's a pretty popular opinion so hmm. they've now posted the full match and and all the winners from that match although i've watched that a few times and they missed several um <laughs> Like, I had only seen the match a couple of times when I watched it, and I could pinpoint, like, at least two that they had missed. So, um, but I remember right after the match, they posted, like, a, a three-minute and, like, 40-second highlight video, and one of the points was, like, a Nadal forehand shank on an inconsequential point. It was, like, Djokovic serving, like, 8-all, 30-15 in the fifth set. And I'm <laughs> like, why are we seeing this point that didn't end up being significant and also wasn't a good point? So, um, and I, I really don't think it would be difficult to just, like, find the winners and, like, the break points, set points, um, like, mini breaks and tie breaks. Um, and, and I think there are plenty of fans out there who would be happy to do this and do a great job with it. Um, sorry if I've gone on about this That's for fine. a while. It's, um, it's one of my main grievances as a fan. But, um, yeah, to sum up, I do think... Um, tennis has a problem with a lot of different organizations and also sometimes just some general incompetence. Yeah, I feel like it's a, in in a sense like this is one of the reasons why I have this podcast is because I feel like this I want this to be somewhat like a a voice for for fans because mm-hmm. there's a lot of um, you know podcasts that exist uh, from people who are 
um insiders and things like that and yeah. not saying that like i i, I want to be like just a tennyson forever and not, not necessarily maybe be insider but i i don't necessarily have the intent of uh becoming a tennis journalist or anything like that but mm-hmm. i just kind of wanted to put the perspective in uh how do a tennis fan how does a tennis fan enjoy and consume tennis and i feel like honestly it's right on with you is like reading and watching and partially when you can when we, you can go to to tournaments you go to them but most often we're going to be watching and writing and, and reading yeah. and i definitely feel like for the the caliber of uh the sport that we are following uh one of the you know trailblazers in terms of equality even though there's a long way to go but ten, female tennis players have it way better than a lot of other athletes um mm-hmm. so i feel like they're really lacking in the um you know fence service you know we we i think we can have a lot more that they're missing out on and definitely the biggest the biggest bad things about it are definitely the um the videos because even in in writing i've seen a lot of cool things in terms of how um they make compilations and things like that in writing for example mm-hmm. there was uh i don't i haven't gone into the atp website in a while so i don't know if they still do it but they used to do um the uh the 10 best atp matches of the year and the 10 best grand slam matches of the year so they separated mm-hmm. those two and i thought it was really awesome yeah so i think in that it, it kind of like makes you relive and not only relive but you also want to go and watch those matches so i feel like bringing it's not it's not only about just bringing you back to the moment of the match as well it's making sure that because they they have a really clear uh call to action if you will so like this match was awesome you are you're a fan did you watch this match no go watch it you know so they had this match online uh even on demand i don't know if you can just buy one single match to watch on tennis channel i haven't you know looked much into it but definitely i would you know and yeah uh I think Judson was uh, from Tennis and Aloha, the, the guy from Twitter. Um, yeah. He talks a lot about challengers. And for a while, I really was interested in challenges as well, because you can see a lot of competitiveness in, in it, too. So I feel like it's mm-hmm. it could be leveraged a lot more. Like they could even have like lives for finals and things like that. It could be like a free things or something like that, like engage with people in, in social media yeah. and, and things like that. And um yeah, like I I am a millennial and I work with social media, so I know that they're missing out on, on a lot of things. But yeah, th- that's my take. I completely agree with you there. Yeah, um, I mean, I-, I will say like I'm I'm really glad you've started this podcast. It's felt fantastic to be able to talk freely about things I both like and dislike about um, kind of the tennis media out there. Um, but yeah, I would agree. I think like something that really attracted me to tennis personally was. Um, all the highlights out there on YouTube. So I would, I would advise all the, all the majors and other tournaments, like make your best matches available, like the whole thing, like extended highlights, short highlights, because like people are going to see that they'll be impressed with the quality and then they're going to come watch like your tournament or, um, or they'll turn on tennis channel or watch the majors or something. Hmm. I think, I think tennis is the best sport in the world. And (laughs) in terms of marketing, I think that they're, they're missing out on, part of an an audience i think it could be more popular than it is yeah i fully agree and also even if they don't make it available for free if they make it available if like a fee for example you say like 4.99 on youtube you can buy the match and we watch it i think it would 
it would just rain money on their laps because I'm pretty sure like a ton of people would go and buy this like high definition 4K matches. You know, I would I'll be all over it. Like I would definitely yeah. buy a couple because some some of them are really really hard to to find. Mm-hmm. Um, some of them, especially when you go like be uh, um before the 2000s. They just yeah, yeah. crap VHS uh, 360 by like whatever 140 uh, aspect ratio like pixel uh, resolution. It's right. it's just it's, terrible. You can barely see the ball. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that, that's another tough thing. Like HD highlights have only really been a, a thing in the last 10, 15 years. But if they, barely, I don't know, if they found a way to make like. I don't know, the 1980 Wimbledon final between Borg and McEnroe and like HD. And they were like, you can buy this, ma- this full match Absolutely. for like five bucks or 10 bucks. Like, yeah, like you said, I'd be all over that. I would, yeah. I'd be the f- the first one in line for that. So, yeah. um, so yeah, I think, um, yeah, th- that would be a great way to like build, um, knowledge in old matches as well. If they yeah. had a method to make like kind of grainy footage, like more clear. Um, hmm. but sorry, that's just me rambling. No, um, no. <laughs> but, but yeah, I think, I think there are a lot of opportunities for tennis channels and tournaments to, um, make more money and build popularity. Yeah, for sure. And I think on that note, like it's been talking for an hour now and, uh, it's, it's great talking. And honestly, we could devise an entire plan for the media situation for, for tennis, yeah. both WTA and ATP. Oh, and like last thing that I want to say, you said uh, you mentioned HD videos. Mm-hmm. WTA was something weird for me because they had, for a long time, they've been doing much better highlights than the ATP. Yeah. But at first, they would only put up 480 on YouTube. So 480p on YouTube is mm-hmm. standard quality. It's trash. Don't put it up there if you yeah. want to go this. Like, oh, there's no reason for it. But so I was really upset with it. Like, you make good highlights. Why not make them HD? Right. <laughs> is like, it you that much be able to, to ask? see the ball. Yeah. Like, and it's not even like, man, if you make a 720, it's already going to be so much better. <laughs> but it's like, right. yeah, no, there is. But now things seem to be selling better. It's like, come on, 2020, you should have been doing this better. It took I a know. pandemic for them to come up with like better better things to do you know but yeah, yeah that that pretty much goes full circle because we talked about the highlights and how that that's how you, how you got into tennis and really fun talk to you and um yeah do you have anything to recommend any books or anything because you a journalist have preferred well, i uh, mean or, <laughs> how much more time do you have um yeah i mean besides besides what i've already said i'll i'll yeah. plug the circuit one more time uh by rowan ricardo phillips because it's just a fantastic book in terms of specific writers that i like um on twitter there's a writer um juan jose uh, vallejo i think he has some fantastic articles he doesn't write anymore but you can find some of the articles at the link in his twitter bio um matthew willis is another great writer hmm. These are both writers who um, who you won't really see their content if you just Google matches. This is uh, through Twitter. Hmm. Um, the Guardian um, has a lot of good tennis articles that I like. Um, yeah. And then if you're really starved for content, um, the link to my blog is in my Twitter bio. So you can you can read some of those. Um, but um, but I, I would not my articles are not in the same league as so many others out there. So um, I, I would say really get your fill of other content before you come to my page. Um, but yeah, I think, I think there's a lot of great tennis content out there. Um, I've learned a lot and had a lot of fun by reading books and articles. So I would really recommend that others do the same thing, especially during the off season when you can't watch live tennis. Yeah. And I was actually going to recommend you uh, your blog, go and oh, read uh, the racket 
dot com and Owen's articles are really great. He, as you could listen from this whole podcast, he's really passionate about tennis. He's a real fan, uh, so we're gonna get real fan stuff in his blog. So go and follow uh, the beginning of a great career in tennis writing. I'm, I'm just telling you this right now. Uh, I'm happy to be uh, one of the first people that, that know you because you're going to be great. So, yeah. Uh, th thanks very much. I appreciate that. And I also appreciate the opportunity to come on here and kind of just um, gush and vent about what I love and don't love about tennis for yeah. multiple minutes. Um, nice. So I really appreciate you listening to me, um, like cite these specific passages and complain about highlights. Um, it, it was a real treat. Thank you. No problem. This is what I'm here for. I love this too. So, yeah. Thank you all for listening. Uh, thanks, Owen, for being here. And you're going to be here for a while now because you're our third co-host and it's going to be amazing. I'm really looking forward for the next season. I uh, hope we have a full season, uh, even though it's going to be a little later. Um, but hopefully we're going to get like a lot of tennis next year to talk about and, you know, just chat about in this podcast and upload a lot of new good content. So, yeah, go follow us on Twitter at Tennis and Bagels on instagram also at tennis and bagels and facebook tennis and bagels we don't post that much in there but things might change next year hopefully um and uh, also follow owen on twitter at tennis nation and me is rolenberg andre uh all those links are going to be in the description uh of this episode so If you're listening on iTunes, make sure you give us a five-star review. That would be amazing. Uh, but if you listen on any other platforms, that's all right, too. It's your choice. Uh, but thanks for being here all the way. If you listen to an hour of this podcast, you're already an amazing human being. So thank you so much for being here with us. And thanks again, Owen. I'll see you guys next time. Yeah, thank you for having me. And I uh, hope everyone out there is staying safe. All right. See you. Bye. up what was that boring no flavor that was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week kiki palmer here and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free hello fresh jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. now that's music to my mouth hello fresh let's get this dinner party started discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com 